Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Hello and welcome to Garden Success. How about a little microphone? That helps. Hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward today to visiting with you about whatever you're interested in related to the garden or even houseplants. This is about the time we start paying more attention, I guess, to our houseplants cooped up inside as it gets colder and colder. But for today, what a good day to be outside. We got some decent weather, uh, not that terribly cold, of course. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, being outside right now allows you to get some stuff done that really needs to get done in the garden and the landscape. Uh, you want to be preparing for what you're going to do with all the leaves when the deluge comes. I hope you will take advantage of those leaves by mowing over them to chop them up into smaller pieces and then stockpiling them somehow somewhere. Uh, I usually leave them in bags myself for at least part of the cool season. I definitely want to use them for composting, uh, for mulching in beds. Uh, just remember that leaves contain a lot of the nutrients that that tree took up during the year. And as a result, when you put them down on the ground, they slowly decompose and release those nutrients, especially when they get covered up with other leaves. So a leaf on the surface just sits there like a dry leaf all year, but as they get covered up, as you mulch a little deeper, they start to decompose. And that is really good for plants. Think about a forest. That's how forests grow. That's what protects the soil. That's what releases nutrients. That's what uh, brings the earthworms to the surface. That is what uh, helps a forest uh, soil to stay moderate, moderate in, in uh, temperatures, the, although the weather may be a little extreme at times. Uh, and those leaves are good for your plants. So I encourage you to not let those get away. So get ready for that. Uh, it's a little early to be pruning things, of course, but it is n a perfect time to be planting things. Uh, any kind of woody ornamental is best planted in the, the f late fall, mid to late fall. Now, I guess I said any. Uh, one exception uh, might be if something is a little cold tender and you want to give it more time to get established before it gets some really good cold on it. Oh, you could wait on those. But in general, Woody ornamentals, woody shrubs, woody trees, woody vines can all be planted now. The same is true for perennials, uh, perennial grasses, perennial flowers, things that are going to grow during the year, die back to the ground in the winter and grow again, come back out in the spring to do the same thing. Those all should be planted now for best results. And the reason is you have all winter when we have a lot of mild temperatures here in the winter. And the roots will grow somewhat underneath the soil uh, and help establish that plant. So when spring comes, it is ahead of the game compared to its spring planted counterpart. Spring's a great planting time, no question about that. But now's a good time. Now's a good time to get out there and get that done. Perennial herbs are another good example. Uh, things like thyme and oregano and chives and others can all be planted now and they will do just fine for you. So take advantage of that. Get outside and do that. Uh, the <clears throat> winter weeds that are going to, the, the uh, warm season weeds that are going to seed still, like uh, the slender aster, those little pretty dime-sized, light lavenderish white 
uh, blooms in your yard, pull those up before they release their, their seeds or you will be uh, sentencing yourself to uh, years of weeding in order to catch back up again. If you've got a weedy lawn, uh, where th this would be a time uh, to to begin thinking about what next year uh, your lawn care activities should be about. For example, by the time we get, mm, I'll say about to early to mid-February, if you were going to put something down to prevent the weed seeds from germinating and establishing, we call those pre-emergence, before the weeds emerge, uh, that needs to be done in early to mid-February. Now, weeds germinate at different times, so that's a good kind of average time, uh, but you would want to go ahead and get those done. I tend to promote number one, having a denser, healthier lawn. So you're going to have all spring, summer, and part of the fall next year to build density in your lawn. That requires moderate water, not overwatering, but a good soaking on an infrequent basis. It requires good sunlight. It requires adequate fertilizer, adequate nutrition, not overdoing it. And it also requires regular mowing. The more often you mow, the denser your lawn. That's just how it is with grass. So if you mow water and fertilize properly next year, next fall you're not going to have been dealing with as many weed problems, and you slowly grow yourself out of the problem. Now there are weeds that survive in a dense, healthy St. Augustine lawn. The Virginia buttonweed is a good example. Uh, but uh, by and large, especially for the annual weeds that either sprout in the fall for the winter time or sprout in the late winter, early spring for the summertime, uh, those, when you block the light, you significantly reduce your weed problems. And a dense lawn is the best way to block the light on those. So uh, don't let the ones that are there now go to seed. If you've got flower beds, uh, garden vegetable beds, you want to make sure and keep those well mulched uh, because, again, we're blocking the light to keep out the weed problems. And when you do have weeds, get them out of there before they go to seed. So now's a good time, and when all this deluge of leaves comes, run over them a bunch of times with a lawnmower and get them in those beds uh, to help help you with your mulching. Or if you don't like the look of that, um, well, uh, number one, close your eyes when you walk through the forest, but number two, uh, go buy you a mulch that's aesthetically pleasing to you, but I strongly encourage that it would be an organic mulch, not, uh, not colored mulches, not uh, rubber mulches for sure, uh, but one that is like a, a wood a wood-based, ground-up wood-based, hardwood, shredded hardwood kinds of mulches, uh, if, if that is more aesthetically appealing. But I would suggest maybe uh, we need to all be shifting our aesthetics sometimes uh, because our aesthetics don't always line up with nature or with, uh, in some cases, common sense of what's best uh, for the yard. Get your pruners sharpened and ready because it won't be too long before we're going to be doing that kind of thing again. In the vegetable garden, uh, now is still a good time to plant some of the cool season crops. All those blue-leafed vegetables, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, kohlrabi, uh, the Brussels sprouts, what am I forgetting, collards and kale. Uh, those are all going in uh, at this time of year. Uh, we can plant the cool season greens like lettuce and arugula and sorrel and whatnot this time of the year. We can also put out mustard. If you like mustard, you can put those out uh, at this time of the year. They will, they will do well. Uh, if you're going to be 
uh, growing some bunching onions, there's still time to get those in. We tried to do that a little earlier, but if you want, if you haven't gotten them done, you can still do it. And then, of course, when I was mentioning greens, I forgot to say spinach. Uh, that's also this time of year as it is with radishes. So uh, the, the challenge in planting late, you can plant a lot of these things on through the winter, uh, but the best time is earlier. Uh, we start those, in, most of them, in mid-September uh, to late September, and it goes especially through October and even on into November. Uh, but uh, you want to give them time to grow before the colder weather arrives, just because it slows down so much uh, that you don't get you know, as fast a production and, and things with them. So those are a few things to keep in mind uh, when you're out and about in the garden this weekend. Well, let's go to the phones. Our number is 845-5689. Or you can also reach me, by the way, by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And we're going to start off with Bill today. How you doing, Bill? Hey, Skip. Uh, collected seeds from my pride of Barbados and want to know if there are any tricks to propagating them from seeds. No, they don't have an... Uh, they don't have any kind of a chemical dormancy or a, a seed coat that, uh, you know, just it won't absorb any water. But I have found that uh, if you nick the seed coat a little bit, you know, take your take a file or, t you know, real carefully take the very tip of your pruners and just just nick the tip. It'll get the water in a little bit faster and they'll germinate a little bit faster. But that's you know, that's not always required. What they do want is warm conditions. So uh, I always say they're not interested in growing in the yard until about May uh, because that cool spring soil is, is not what they like. So if you're going to start them inside, give them, give them plenty of warmth, maybe even a little bottom heat from one of those mats. Okay. So it uh, sounds like I should probably wait until spring to uh, put them in the soil and try to sprout them. Oh yes, for sure in the soil. Yeah, I would say May for sure on that. If you're gonna if you're gonna grow them out in in place, uh, you can get a little bit of a head start on the, on that by starting them inside. If you've got some sort of a plant light, you know, so that they grow strong and not spindly. Okay. Well, I certainly appreciate that. I I think I'll wait till uh, um, March at least. To start them inside. Okay, did you just get the seeds or do you have a plant that you collected them from? I have a, I've collected them from a plant. Okay, those are beautiful, aren't they? Oh, 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 and, so, and the bees love them so much. They oh. do, as do uh, the swallowtail, some of the swallowtail butterflies. Yeah, and uh, I really noticed them when I went to San Antonio, how they're growing along the median on the interstate yes you know you know they're not getting cared for there no they're not and in <laughs> fact san antonio is the pride of barbados capital of texas uh it is they just are gorgeous there there's a lot of beautiful ones in austin too but uh in those areas where uh they look more toward a zero escape uh you know water conscious landscaping and things uh, it tends to get a little dry at times compared to here uh th they just do so well I think yeah. they're, I think they're the gaudiest thing we put in the landscape. So, that. yeah, yeah, I, I just love them. I just love them and try to get a lot more from these seeds I collected. There you well, go. Appreciate appreciate your advice. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate the call. Our phone number nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine fifty six eighty nine or by email garden success at t a m u 
tamu.edu, garden success at tamu.edu. If you are growing a vegetable garden, getting back to the vegetable garden talk, uh, this is a time to put some fertilizer out there with a little bit of nitrogen boost uh, for your plants to keep them growing well. Now, if you've already got high levels of everything in your soil, that wouldn't be necessary at all. But as we go into cold weather, uh, the, the uh, soil temperatures lower and the microbial activity slows down a bit. And so having a little bit of an extra boost uh, can be helpful. And so we're not talking about over-fertilizing, but just a little bit. If it's a synthetic product, it's going to be pretty much an immediate release when it gets wet. Uh, but if it's an organic, it has to microbially decompose. So just realize there's going to be a little bit of a delayed reaction when you use most organic fertilizers in the cold season. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be some decomposition, but what you'll find is as things start to warm up, you get a much faster release of those products into the soil. Just a couple things to keep in mind there with your with your fertilizing in the in the flower beds. Uh, we have got all kinds of good cool season flowers. Our winters are in by and large pretty mild around here. We have those exceptions like February 21, but in general we we have a mild winter, and as a result, there are a lot of plants like dianthus uh, and stock. There's a flowering plant called stock. Some you may not have heard of it or seen it, but it it does well here. It has a nice light fragrance too. Uh, there's snapdragons. Uh, there is alyssum. There is calendula. Uh, there is nasturtiums. All of these can take some cool weather, uh, especially the the first ones I was mentioning, and. Uh, that we can go ahead and keep planting those uh, that don't delay much longer because they're not our most cold hardy uh, flowers. But the uh, violas and pansies are the two that are the most cold hardy. And then, of course, the ornamental uh, foliage, uh, which is in ornamental cabbage and ornamental kale and a plant called Dusty Miller that has that silvery white uh, foliage that we grow it for the foliage. Uh, those are those are all good for the cool season. They do they do quite well for us, uh, but there's no reason not to have color in the winter time. So I would encourage you to plant some of those. I like the violas best of all of those. They just bloom more. Uh, seems like little rain rainstorms don't tend to knock them back as much as they do the larger bloomed bloom pansies. Uh, but the, anyway, those are some things to think about. Also with flowers, a little boost of nitrogen helps. And you think, well, wait, I thought with flowers, you're supposed to put phosphorus on them or potassium or whatever. Well, all the nutrients are important, but a lot of the flowers now, they've, they've been bred to just bloom and bloom. In fact, almost bloom themselves to death. Uh, they use so much energy in the blooms that they don't have the foliage necessary to produce the carbohydrates to keep going. But with a boost of nitrogen and occasionally cutting back of some types of flowers, uh, that helps them rejuvenate and build those carbohydrates so they can keep going through the bloom cycles and doing well. So it is important to put a little bit of fertilizer down, especially the nitrogen, uh, just to keep some vigor in those kinds of plants. Of course, remember, the colder it gets, the less vigor they're going to have, period, just because it's getting cold. Even if they are hardy enough to survive a freeze, that doesn't mean they're going to grow fast when the temperature's in the 30s. Uh, this, so those are a few things to think about in flower beds. If you've got some plants that are marginally hardy, uh, and we were just talking about the Pride of Barbados, uh, also sometimes called Red Bird of Paradise. Uh, those will benefit if you will mound up some mulch around the base. 
And what that does is it kind of holds the warmth of the soil in. And uh, on a very, very bitter cold period, those plants can be killed outright. We are kind of on the northern end of, of Pride of Barbados. We're on the northern end of Firebush. Uh, and even Mexican heather, which people think of as an annual, can be a perennial if you protect the base of it. Now, we're not mounding a lot over the top, but once you get a frost that kills the top on Mexican heather, just throw a layer, an inch or two of compost, or throw, uh, you know, maybe three or four inches of shredded up leaves, three inches would probably be enough, over the top of those. And then in spring, when it warms up, you'll start to see little buds coming up, uh, sprouting up out of the ground around the base, the crown of the plant. And I keep my Mexican heather from year to year that way. And so it's, you can do it. Uh, just be ready to protect those things when you do. If you've got citrus, if it's in a container, you're going to bring those in when we have a hard freeze. Uh, but if it's in the ground, you can't dig it up or you don't want to dig it up and bring it in. So what we do is we cover those plants. And uh, covers are a great way to keep plants um, uh, surviving through a, a freeze that would be a little too much for the whatever species uh, you're you're dealing with. So with a cover, in fact, with citrus, we got a couple of strategies. One, one using the cover, you're you're putting something over the plant to create a dead air space around that plant. It also helps with frost. Frost tends to form on the surface that's radiating its heat out into the cold uh, evening sky. And so that's why frost happens more on your lawn outside of the beneath, like a live oak tree, than underneath. Because underneath, it's got the live oak foliage itself is, is help radiating, thing, radiating things back. And uh, so you don't have frost as much. But when you put a cover over, the frost may form on the cover, but not so much on the leaves underneath. Now, when it comes to freezes, the temperature is going to drop down. And when you cover and create dead air space, and that that is very important, creating the dead air space underneath, then the, the speed at which tissues cool off slows down a little bit. If you've got a cold wind or light, even a light, light breeze blowing through, it's displacing any warmth that that plant may have that as the plant tissues radiate. And uh, so by creating a dead air space, you slow that down. Also, then the heat of the soil can rise up underneath and help keep things warm. And when we say warm, uh, when I say warm, what I'm talking about is above freezing. Uh, so if you have some bare soil that's heated up from the sun during the day and then uh, you cover that plant at night, the soil heat rises up and all we got to do is get it just a few degrees up in most cases so that uh, it, it, you know, the tissues aren't killed by whatever temperature that plant normally tolerates or just below that. Uh, and, and that makes a big difference. So when you cover a plant, and this is important, make the cover drape down just as if, um, you know, if the plant was an umbrella and, and say, well, where would the water drip if this plant was an umbrella? Well, that's your cover drops straight down there and you have all that beneath the canopy soil that's allowed to to warm and then release heat. And that's one time when I think bringing the mulch back is help is a good idea. Normally we keep mulch on the soil for weed reasons. But when you're going to try to have warm soil uh, helping you, uh, it's better to not have mulch soil if you want to get that heat back up. 
So I'll comment more on that in just a moment. But for now, we're going to go back to the phones, and we are going to talk to Lowell. Hello, Lowell. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Question for you, or I guess a little bit. I am a professional gravestone conservator, uh, and I and I work out of Brenham. And in the many cemeteries that I work in, the first thing that I run across is a plethora of grass burrs. Ah. And, and 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 for me, for working, that that creates a nightmare. And mm-hmm. so I was wondering, what would you suggest as a pre-emergent? I guess. Uh, because they, they, they cannot and will not mow frequently enough to keep them from ever seeding out. Mm-hmm. And so is there anything that I could spray on the areas to, to, to retard those or to yes. get rid of those over a course of a year or two? Yes, and that's the best thing, because using a post-emergent on grass burr, if it's growing in grasses, you're going to kill the grass burr and the grass itself. So right. we can't use the post. But the pre you can do, uh, grass burrs begin sprouting at about 55 degrees, but it's really when it gets up, uh, you know, into the 60s that the sprouting speeds up, and so certainly when it's up to about 70. So we want to get that first pre-emergent down in uh, mid-February, uh, possibly a little earlier, but probably not. That Mid-February is probably good enough. There what number, product would you recommend? Well, there's a number of different ones out there. I hate to just rattle off uh, chemical names over the air because, you know, there's a lot of different ones, and then each one has different products that you find it in. If okay. you If you will email me at the extension office, uh, I can email you back a list of things that are that are used. Uh, now I'll just give one example, and I'm not saying you use this one, but pendimethalin is a common one in a lot of our pre-emergent products. And it will work on grass burrs. Uh, But all of these, there's some caveats to them. Uh, And so uh, you don't want to overuse them, and you you must apply them according to the label. And what that's going to mean is a certain concentration. If you overdo it and you have St. Augustine or or other turf grasses, you can actually severely damage your turf grass. Uh, But then you apply them, and then you water them in with a specified light amount of irrigation to just move it into the soil because you got to get the product in the surface of the soil so as the sprouting weed tries to come through, that's when it gets it. Okay, okay. Well, most of these are, are, are certainly rural cemeteries and they're, and they're not, you know, lawn grass, you know, right. turf grass, you know, okay. type things. It's just, a, it's just a kind of a, uh, an issue with that. Right. Um, the, other, the other question I had for you is uh, I have several very small cemeteries, probably... Uh, 200 square feet or less, and they are in the middle of hay meadows. And, and of course, they are heavy populated with Johnson grass because no one mows those and so forth. Anything that I could put in there in terms of a growing grass that would not require a lot of maintenance? Um, what, what part of the state are, are you talking about? Uh, this is all in within within uh, oh, 200 miles of, of Bryan College Station. Okay. Uh, I live in Brenham, as I said, and, and this one's out toward uh, Navasota. Okay. And, and they're full sun. And so, like I said, I, you know, I, I run and I, mow, I yeah. mow a lot you know, out there, and I'm just looking for something that would either be a, right. either like one of those hormonal retardants maybe to keep the growth down limited or either some sort of you know, growing ground cover that would right. not, not, not get too tall. Right. And and typically, these uh, cemeteries are probably not irrigated a lot? No, none of them. Okay. I, I, what I would use is a grass called Bahia. It's a native grass that does well in East Texas. Uh, it actually puts up with some shade, uh, but uh, it, 
it does well. The negative of bahia is it sends up seed heads the day after you mow. I mean, almost. It, 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 you always got these little seed heads sticking up, and that's annoying. But the grass itself can be kept down. It will tolerate almost zero care whatsoever. Uh, it'll put up with some droughty kinds of soils a little bit there, pretty good. And, and it just, it would be one to consider. Um, beyond that, you would be looking at some native blends. And there's companies that will sell you seed for native blends of grass. You tell them okay. where you are and they'll give you a blend of native grasses that, that will do pretty well there. So that would be another option. Uh, so the Bahia being uh, a lot of people uh, don't care for Bahia because of the seed heads and because it's kind of hard to get rid of, but there are products that will absolutely get rid of it. Uh, but uh, that would probably be one I would consider. Okay. Well, I've eradicated most of the Johnson grass out of there and any of the you know woody-type vines and so forth. And mm-hmm. so the cemetery was overgrown about three years ago just totally. Yeah. And so it was cleared down to the, just the soil, and, of course, all that volunteer Right. Growth, you know, came back of anything that ever landed on that dirt. And yes. so I'm just trying to, you know, minimize that. There's no visitors to the cemetery. And so it's just a matter of keeping it yeah. for the landowners that they're not, you know, looking at an eyesore then. Yeah. And having a good tough grass that can survive in there on the under those conditions, I think, would be would be good. So. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. And I will send you an email then uh, at some point at your uh, extension office. And, and, and if there's any, you know, product that you could, you know, be a little bit more specific with, you know, yes. so that. I don't, I don't waste, you know, money on something or, or buy something that's less than effective. Right. Well, and remind me in the email what what it's going on, you know, the kind of grass or weeds that's there, and it's a cemetery kind of thing, so I can uh, prescribe accordingly. One other thing about the grass burr loyal is when you put that first application on, come back in about 45 days and do it again uh, because these can germinate over a long period of time, and these products typically don't last that long. Uh, doing their job. So once, let's say you did mid-February, uh, you know, early April would be another time to come back, early to mid-April, get that next one on so that uh, you extend that coverage on into the summer. Okay, and then, and then, then, then the following year there should be little to none that would, that would, re- that would come back, correct? Well, from, you wouldn't have created new seeds, uh, if you prevent them. But uh, grass burrs, all weeds can last a while. I don't know what the typical life uh, uh, time or lifespan of a grass burr seed would be, uh, how many years until it could come up. I, I suspect they, they, don't, they can sit there for a while. Uh, right. But uh, yeah, so you probably, you would need to do this for a little while to, to make sure it happens uh, okay. successfully. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much and y'all have a good day. All right. Thank you so much for the call. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu, gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. And let's talk about some emails. We've got a few of them to go through here. Um, Maggie has a question. Our, our, her soil test shows really high phosphorus. In fact, it's it's high in everything just about. Uh, and uh, the question is, how do you, you know, can can you bring in more soil to mix with it to, 
to lower the phosphorus because phosphorus is not something you wash out of the soil or uh, you know you you're not going to raise crops of vegetables and harvest them and essentially get phosphorus out of the garden that way. Uh, it's kind of there. So when your phosphorus is high, you can just put it in your will that your great-grandchildren need to not use a high phosphorus fertilizer in the garden because it's still going to be around. Uh, but uh, so diluting it, if you had a raised bed garden, diluting it by bringing in a not high but low phosphorus soil, I guess that would be feasible. Uh, but in general, I would keep your other nutrients up there. Your pH is not too high, which is good, because the combination of high phosphorus and high pH can create some issues. Uh, and I, I wouldn't, I don't know, personally, I wouldn't go to all the trouble of trying to bring in soil to dilute it like that. Uh, I think you're going to still be able to grow uh, things. Certainly avoid any fertilizer with phosphorus, and a lot of manures uh, have quite a bit of phosphorus in them. So uh, just kind of keep all that in mind as you're gardening. And I think you're going to be uh, just fine. Looks like for, for your soil, probably for a couple of years, just a little bit of nitrogen here and there is about all you're going to need. Uh, Kaysen uh, emails about uh, a large oak tree, a beautiful large oak tree that uh, this summer turned brown. Uh, about in July it turned brown and, you know, waiting on it and waiting on it to see if it's going to re-sprout, uh, it still hasn't. And my, my suggestion is you probably have lost that tree. Uh, we've had a number of problems with, with oaks. I've got a, a special guest uh, program coming up um, with Dr. Dave Apple, who is a tree disease specialist. And uh, we talk about this particular is these issues with oaks. Uh, but um, the, the, I, I think if you want to wait till spring to see, that's fine. I, I just don't think there, there's much of a chance based on the symptoms and how they, and when they happened, uh, as you described it of that tree uh, coming back. So uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news on that one. Uh, Rosina and Thomas had asked about a, a low-growing juniper ground cover. Now, some of you, y'all are familiar with junipers. We've got the red cedar, eastern red cedar, that's out all through the, the countryside here. Uh, and then we have junipers that are shrubs in the yard. But there's also a juniper that just grows horizontal right along the ground. In fact, speaking of horizontal, it's its proper name is Juniperus horizontalis. So that ought to tell you everything you need to know. It's a horizontal juniper. And uh, th there are a number of different varieties of it. It stays very low, oh, probably a dozen or more varieties. You're just going to have to see what you can find where you shop for your, your plants. Uh, you know, I could send you out after this or that name of a variety, but whatever is for sale in, in, in the area would be uh, what you would want to try. Now, having said that, uh, junipers have some issues. Uh, spider mites uh, will attack junipers and can cause a bronzing, serious uh, browning bronzing of the foliage. Uh, the um, bagworms that create the little hanging bags on them can defoliate them. And any time you defoliate uh, cypress and ginger and, uh, and even pine, uh, when you take all the living needles, even the pine needles or scale-like uh, foliage of the, of the juniper, when you take the green away, it's not going to re-sprout. So if you had a, a red cedar tree or a juniper bush in your yard and you just took a chainsaw and chopped off all the ends of the limbs so everything green is gone, that tree's dead. It's, it can't, like every other, almost every other tree we deal with, 
when you cut them back, they're going to sprout out from behind where you cut them. Junipers can't do that. So when something takes the foliage off your horizontal juniper, I mentioned spider mites, I'm uh, bagworms, but also there are some foliage diseases. So you definitely don't want to water them with a sprinkler. You would use drip irrigation underneath the foliage to wet the soil as needed. They're not going to take a lot of water or need a lot of water. Um, and when you do that, uh, you can avoid, uh, or let's say this, you can minimize the disease problems. Rainfall still happens, and we go through times when it rains a lot. And these foliage diseases turn the foliage brown and dead, and that's it. That's a dead spot, and it's not going to come back in. So I'm not a real big juniper fan, but I see the advantage, of certainly this aesthetic uh, beauty, of a horizontal juniper as a ground cover, as a rug or a carpet uh, on the ground, uh, that, that certainly is worth it. Just keep that in mind. Also, they don't tolerate soggy, wet feet. Uh, they're often used on kind of a slope or a hillside uh, because they cover that, protect the soil pretty well and, and whatnot. But if you've got a heavy clay soil and this area does not drain well, uh, it's probably not going to be a, a, good, a good choice uh, for that either. So a few things to think about. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, and speaking of emails, uh, Christy emailed about the bulb gifts that you see at Christmas time that you force indoors. So it may be an amaryllis, a big old amaryllis, you know, baseball-sized bulb uh, that um, you would see in a pot, and it would send up its bloom stalk uh, and be beautiful indoor blooming. There are daffodils that and paper whites. Uh, paper whites are the little clusters of white flowers that have a fragrance. Uh, that are that are used indoors for forcing as well. Sometimes those are put either in a jar called a bulb jar or a bulb glass, bulb vase, and uh, the water is brought right up to the base of the bulb and the roots hang down in the water and the top uh, holds the bulb. Uh, the, the vase is designed to hold the bulb and then you get the blooms above. Sometimes they're put in pebbles and with, with moisture down there and, and forced indoors. So they, they take they take different amounts of time. I, I've seen a lot of, uh, I was just out at um, Farm Patch the other day, and they had some of the amaryllis that they brought in. They already have bloom stalks coming up. So that would be uh, one that, you know, right away it's going to be heading toward blooming. Uh, others that are fully dormant, some of the daffodils and things like that, you may, you may find that it's going to be a little while before they get the roots down, send the stalks up, and do their blooming. And it's going to vary from one uh, to another. So you might look online for the kinds of things you're wanting to force and about how long. There'll be advice about, you know, how many weeks before you want it to have blooms on it should you start the uh, forcing process. Uh, and hopefully that'll give you a good start there, Christy. Well, our phone number, 845-5689. Uh, we're going to go back to the phones now and talk to Jennifer. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. What's up? I have a question about, I've got St. Augustine grass in the front and back, and I think it's just in the front yard. I just have some random mushrooms that have cropped up in the last couple of weeks, and okay. I wasn't sure what they meant, if it was harmful or what to think about it. Okay. Are they in a circle? 
Uh, yeah, they're like big, round mushrooms. And then there were a couple others that were like clumps of a bunch of tiny ones all clumped together. Okay, so the, the, the big, white, round ones, are the mushrooms themselves arranged in a circular pattern in the yard? They're... No, they're kind of all the, the big ones are all just kind of random randomly around the yard okay. and they're not white, they're brown. Oh, they're brown. Okay. Yeah, so I don't I'm not going to be able to name the actual mushrooms that you're seeing, but those are uh two things are, could be happening. Uh they could be uh, a fungus that is growing in the thatch uh in the surf soil surface uh mm-hmm. that and fungi decompose things from logs in the forest to thatch in your lawn. And uh, those um, then send up their mushrooms, which is their fruiting bodies, periodically. And oftentimes that, that creates the fairy rings that make circles. But there, yeah, okay. there's others that do that. But then there's some that live in association with tree roots. Uh, mm-hmm. you, uh, you've probably heard of truffles, of course. Well, those are yeah. living in an association with tree roots in the forest. Uh, but we have many others that do that. Uh, one called a honey mushroom. And they're just there's just a bunch of different ones. Most of them, not a problem. Some of them a sign that the tree has a root rot problem. Uh, huh. But uh, just here and there, uh, I, I wouldn't be alarmed. And there's nothing to do to treat them. Uh, you know, if you chop them off or pull them off, they they may just come back again. And, and it typically is something we see in the fall. When we cool off and get some rains, that always pops up uh, mm-hmm. all around. Dif- all the different kinds of things I'm describing really love the fall season. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, I wouldn't go out and eat them uh, without knowing what they are. You know, they say there's there's two kinds of uh, uh, well, actually, all mushrooms are edible. uh, Some only once. You may have heard that (laughs) that before. Uh, So keep in mind that (laughs) uh, I I get a lot of calls sometimes. People know, hey, is this such and such? Can I eat it? And it's like, man, the last thing I'm going to do is tell yeah. you, yeah, go ahead and eat it. <laughs> no, no, definitely not going to. I okay. know that wasn't your question, but thanks no. for the call. I appreciate You're that. Welcome. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Our phone number, 845-5689-845-5689, or by email, success at tamu.edu. I want to remind you again, I, I always try to say this each week, that uh, you can listen to shows live online on your computer. Uh, you can also listen to past shows, which are they are also stored online, where you can go back and listen to those on your computer. And now we're also available by podcast. So many of the, the common podcast uh, uh, apps uh, from Spotify uh, to Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, uh, NPR has a podcast, Lots of different ones there that, that you may find Garden Success on. Just go give it a look. And if it doesn't have it, get a different podcast. Uh, we've, there's a lot of good good tools out there uh, that can be used for that. But that way you can go back and listen. We've got, got a couple of very interesting tape shows coming up that you are going to be amazed and fascinated uh, by uh, the knowledge of the guests and uh, the natural world uh, that, that we uh, deal with around us. So, and by the way, thank you for being a listener. Uh, let's go to the phones now and talk to Maggie. Hello, Maggie. Good afternoon, Skip, and happy Thanksgiving. And you too. Just, thank you very much. I have one question about a Christmas cactus. Okay. Is it, uh, it's been out, you know, outdoors all winter long. Is it necessary to put it in a darkened area 
no. in order for those blooms to come. It's not necessary. It'll happen. Uh, I had one that I put out. I think I, I leave mine out a little bit into the fall because the cool, crisp nights are one of the things that can kind of help in the bloom initiation. But even that's not necessary. Uh, but it's the day length that, that affects it. And our day length is now, mine is, is put little tiny BB size buds on uh, with no dark treatments at all. Now, certainly putting it in a closet and limiting the day length would speed that process, but it's not necessary with the Christmas cactus. Wonderful. Thank you for the advice. I appreciate it. All right. Enjoy that. Those are beautiful, aren't they? they yes, they are. And they're easy to grow, too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I still have mine out on my screen porch, and it's just doing lovely. So That's great. right. That's right. Uh, it's a, thank you for the call, Maggie. Yeah, You're uh, welcome. Christmas cactus and the moth orchid, the one you see predominantly in the grocery stores. Christmas cast, cactus and moth orchid. I like to say they are absolutely easy to grow as long as you don't kill them. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, almost by neglect, they survive pretty well. Uh, and that's overstating it a bit. But when we get in there and you're watering your orchids too much, keeping them wet, or same with Christmas cactus, uh, too much, uh, you know, you can create problems. But you give them a good bright light out of direct full sun, and they just will thrive. I've had mine outdoors. They will put up with periodic droughts, but, and this is the Christmas cactus, but they don't like it. Uh, even though their name says cactus, they're not native to the desert. They are native to an environment that does get considerable amounts of moisture. And so they do their best and grow their best and get bigger and therefore have more flowers if you keep the soil moderately moist. Just You just don't have to panic if you forgot to water them for a few days. They're going to be okay. Okay, what were we talking about? Oh, emails. Uh, let's see. Sam asked about a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, flowering plants for shade areas. And I think we may have talked some about this last week, but I'm going to go into it a little more today. Uh, for example, uh, I think a camellia was a suggestion, knowing, of course, the, they, they know that the, the camellia is not going to do real well here. Uh, but a lot of the plants that, that are more of a forest environment uh, with slightly acidic soil, uh, just don't do well here because our soil typically is not acidic. There are areas that have acidic soil in the listening area, uh, but uh, typically is not. And then our, our, our water, high sodium, which is a high, can create a higher pH as well, uh, is, is another issue. But camellias and azaleas and gardenias and hydrangeas would all be examples of those kind of plants. And so finding a shrubby type plant in, for shade here is a little bit of a challenge. Uh, you, we do have a few, and we also have some perennials that I would include in the mix. So uh, when it comes to a woody-type plant, uh, Mexican buckeye uh, is native to the southwest parts of the area in Mexico. Uh, it, is, it is tolerant of drought, uh, and it is also tolerant of low light levels. Now, when we say shade, shade does not always equal shade. There is deep shade, for example, under a large spreading live oak tree. And then there's maybe part day shade or a very bright shade, uh, dappled type of, of sun. Uh, and so there's a big range there. And so when, when I tell you some of these will do in shade, most of them need decent light intensity uh, to, to do well. If They don't have to have full sun, but they have to have light intensity. Another one that... Uh, 
you mean you probably need to work with a little bit to get it happy maybe adding a lot of organic matter to the soil but that would be the spring bouquet viburnum spring bouquet is a as its name implies a spring blooming by viburnum that is is quite uh compact compared to a lot of the viburnums it's it's not gonna you know get up over the eaves and stuff uh, and spring bouquet uh, will bloom in a bright shade as well uh, as well the, uh, the mexican buckeye mexican buckeye is going to be quite a large bush um, a deciduous too by the way uh, so those would be examples. Another uh, thing that I would consider is shrimp plant. Shrimp plant does well in a shady area, and there's different types of shrimp plant. Uh, one type has variegated foliage, uh, which really adds a lot of interest along with the, the blooms themselves. Uh, then uh, a perennial, uh, this would also go back actually to almost a shrub-like plant, but it is a perennial, is Turk's cap. Turk's cap will bloom in quite a bit of shade, and it does spread underground, so it doesn't stay as one bush, uh, but it spreads out, uh, but you can control that if you don't want it to spread, uh, just digging up the periphery. Uh, but Turk's cap would be an example. And then finally, Texas Gold Columbine. Texas Gold Columbine, is a, it puts up with a dry shade. Uh, it typically is happiest in the cool season, and it blooms in the spring. Uh, so that would give you some color in the shade. And beyond that, Sam, I think you're going to probably need to look at uh, annual flowers as, as your shade uh, plants. If your shade is deciduous, you could have things like uh, uh, pansies and violas and dianthus and whatnot in the shade in the cool season. And then you would have uh, impatience, for example, or wishbone flower in the warm season. Uh, and then foliage, uh, like the uh, caladiums being a prime example, as a way to bring color into shade um, the, as a final option. Well, let's take a break there on that and go to the phones and talk to Kate. Hello, Kate. Hi, how are you doing? Well, thank you. What's up today? I've, I've learned so much from you already on this program. Um, the reason I'm calling today is... Um, a friend did me a favor uh, to share some lilies with me, actually iris and crinium lily, and we met and she told me she was bringing me some bulbs, and I was expecting some things I could like hold in my hand, uh -huh. and she brought me the entire plant, Okay, uh, you know, with the foliage and the, obviously the bulbs underneath, but the foliage still growing. And the bulb on this cranium is quite large. Yes. So here I am with this nice uh, friend that thought <clears throat> thought she'd do me a favor. Can I just plant these as I would if it were spring, or you know, just plant the whole plant, or do I just cut everything off and dry the bulb? Uh, no, I would plant it. I would go ahead and plant it now and get it down to where. The bulb itself, of course, is underground, uh, and and it will it will do just fine. Uh, Dr. Bill Welch, one of my mentors, uh, made a statement about crinums once, and he said no crinum has ever he doesn't think any crinum has ever died, and that's probably a good way to look at it because they are extremely tough. Uh, once we dug one out uh, of a garden down in Houston, and the thing was the size of a almost a bowling ball size and I thought we were going to have to bring a backhoe in I mean it, <laughs> it was it was a monster but crinums are easy yeah just go ahead and get it in the ground no I mean you could you know you could 
let the top dry and plant it later if you wanted, but no need to. And what kind of um, spot should I pick for these uh, for shade or yeah. sun? Crinums can take some sun. They certainly do. You see them out in the sun. They also put up with a part-day sun. So if you've got an area that uh, is is part-day, I think that you'll find they do well in that as well. I just wouldn't put them in a whole lot of shade, uh, although they are somewhat uh, tolerant of, of it, as long as it's bright. You wouldn't put them in a whole lot of shade, or you wouldn't put them in a whole lot of sun? I, well, the ones that... that that I've enjoyed the most have been in almost full sun. Uh, and, and so I've seen them, you know, out in cemetery or someplace where they're in the full sun. It looks like it's getting a little bit bleached, the foliage and the full brunt of it. Uh, but they do, they do okay there. But as you get into too much shade, it's going to affect their ability to make carbohydrates and therefore to produce blooms. And so just give them as much light as you can. Uh, yeah, okay. That's always a challenge with my uh, my layout here. Okay. But I'll try to do the best I can on that. Yeah. Is your is your shade a deciduous shade, or is it like a live oak tree, so it's always got some leaves up there? Well, I put up a shade cloth uh, from roof eave to roof eave to get some shade in the blistering hot summer. Okay. Because my garden is, oh God, in the summer, it's probably in full sun from mm, 9.30 in the morning to 7 at night. Okay. And I have one tree that produces some shade. So that's probably the only place I can plant things where... They can tolerate some sun, but not the late afternoon sun. Okay. Well, I, I wouldn't worry about it a whole lot. Um, the crinums are pretty tough, but a little bit of a break would probably be a good thing. And I'm, and I'm saying that wrong. You're calling them crinum? Crinum. C-R-I-N-U-M. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was misspelling it. Okay. Okay. I hope we're talking Thanks. about the same plant. <laughs> Well, it's got one stalk, and then it puts multiple heads out yes. at the top. That's it. That's it. We'll I enjoy it. it. Okay. Enjoy it, and and Thanks. just just plant it where you want to leave it, uh, or or else you you'll be renting a backhoe someday. <laughs> All Sorry right. For laughing. Thank you, Bye-bye. Kate. I appreciate the call. Our phone number eight four five five six eight nine, or by email garden success at tamu dot you. I want to go back to Sam's question. We talked about the color in the shade, especially requesting flowers in the shade. Uh, There's also a question about uh, cherry tomatoes. Uh, the question was, do you bring them into the house or should you put them in a somewhat of a greenhouse that they have? Well, the, the greenhouse, as long as the light is good, would be a happier place and also as long as it doesn't freeze in the greenhouse. Now, uh, most of our greenhouses in the area, you know, it's it's just something that's like an enclosed uh, space that the sun shines in, uh, not a place that's heated. But you could always put a little heater out on one of those 
really bad cold nights in your greenhouse. Uh, but the tomatoes would be happier out there because they get light. If it's just for a few nights, they can come into the house or the garage or anything, uh, and they'll be okay. Just remember that with all of our warm season crops, when it starts to cool off, they slow down. And their growth rate is just a fraction of what it would have been during nice warm weather. Uh, and so if you've got some tomatoes and they don't look like you can quite pick them yet, uh, you may want to try holding them, but just remember that how fast they ripen is going to be a lot slower now that we're in colder weather. So at some point here, you probably want to go ahead and pick them off. Uh, all the ones that are nearing full size on those cherries, if you kind of watch them, the deeper green turns more to kind of a lighter green, uh, a pale, paler green, and that's showing that they're hitting a mature stage. And then the color, of course, and the full ripening comes after that. But once they hit a mature stage, they will ripen inside on the counter. Uh, but if they're not mature, they won't. I usually pick a few uh, that I'm not sure about and bring them in because, you know, worst case scenario, you end up throwing a few away. But at least that way, you can enjoy uh, a good tomato in the cool season. And I know people always talk about vine-ripe tomatoes, but I'll tell you this. When, uh, when a tomato ripens, even on the counter indoors, especially when you consider the season it is and how many fresh tomatoes are around, you will enjoy it. It's it's still good. They tomatoes do a pretty good job of ripening and developing flavor, even off the vine when they have to finish off the vine. Uh, so I I wouldn't uh, turn up my nose at that. I think you'll be happy to have them around. Our phone number is eight four five five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine or by email at garden success at t a m u edu. I'll talk about some things going on around town. So on November 17th, which is today, tonight at 6.30 p.m. at the AgriLife Extension Office, my office, out on County Park Court. It's right next to the Brazos County Tax Office. Uh, so if you go out University toward the east, cross over the bypass, uh, it's back in in that part of the community. Uh, but the county extension office is at 4153 County Park Court. The program tonight is put on by the Texas Master Naturalist uh, chapter here in the Brazos Valley and also the, the Native Plant Society of Texas local chapter, the Post Oak chapter. It's a combination. And they're going to have Cherie Coburn speaking on seven simple steps, garden design made easy. Seven simple steps, garden design made easy. It's a free program, uh, and it begins at 6.30 p.m. tonight. I can personally vouch for Cherie. Uh, the first Master Gardener program I ever led was in Montgomery County over in Conroe uh, many years ago, more than Cherie and I will be willing to admit. And uh, Cherie was one of our master gardeners over there. And Cherie is an author. Uh, she's a, a, a very uh, cherished speaker. Uh, she does an excellent job presenting. You will enjoy it. You will learn a lot. And it'll also give you an opportunity to meet some of the master naturalists and the Native Plant Society members, many of which probably wear both those hats. Uh, but that's tonight, uh, 6.30 p.m. at the Extension Office. On Tuesday, November 20th, 
the, the Brazos Valley Orchid Society meets at Fire Station 6, which is on University Drive at the corner of University and Tarot. Uh, it's the pretty fire station when you drive out east uh, of campus, uh, heading toward the bypass. You know which one I'm talking about. And uh, that is from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. You can bring your orchids if they're not blooming and you want to know what you should be doing to make them bloom. Or if you just want other tips on how to grow orchids, they can help you with that. So, And orchids, are I, I kind of was talking about them easier as being an, just a, earlier as being a super easy plant. And they really are. It, an orchid needs bright light. Uh, now, I'm talking about the moth orchid, the one in the grocery store. Some are much more challenging to grow. But it needs bright light, but not direct sun. So by a bright window, uh, you know, we have ours in actually in a bathroom area. And, and the, that's the other thing they like, is they like a little humidity if you can provide it. Uh, and they will bloom and bloom and repeat bloom for you. I know there's some other tips as to occasionally repotting them and watering them. When you water them, you want to give a good drenching of the soil and then pour all the water out of the container. They come in, in bark or sphagnum moss. Uh, they don't come in soil. And so uh, you want to let them soak a minute and then pour the water out uh, because if you keep them too wet, that's a problem. Uh, it's one of those plants, as I said, that is super easy to grow if you don't kill it. And kill it means doing the things it doesn't want you to do to it. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. Uh, tell your neighbors about the show and also about the podcast if they would like to listen later. We look forward to talking to you again next week. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.